Good morning, everyone. If you are blessed to have siblings that are close to you, then you know that family can be one of life's greatest joy. Siblings are part of what makes it so special. Yes, you may disagree. You may fight occasionally. If you'd like stories about that from my childhood, I'm sure my parents would be happy to oblige about that. But there are a few people that know you better than your siblings do. And if you have close siblings, then you know that special bond that you share. But something we may not realize is that we actually have that same kind of relationship, that same kind of sibling bond, in a sense, with Jesus, with our Lord. And our passage today is going to explain how that is and what that looks like. If you haven't been here, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a letter, really more like a sermon from an unknown author, a preacher, and he's writing to Jewish background believers, Hebrew people, but who now follow Jesus Christ. And he has a message for them. His message is that Jesus is better. He's better than anything else you compare him to. And so what we've been doing is we've been doing the same thing. We've been saying Jesus is better than something else and making a comparison. We do this because when you compare something, it adds emotion to it. Last weekend, my wife's family got together because they make homemade applesauce. And you can buy whatever applesauce you want from the store, but let me tell you, the Mustard family applesauce is better than that applesauce. And I say that because there's the emotion with it. And so likewise, today, we're going to talk about Jesus and how he's a better brother than any other brother that we could have. Last time we talked about how Jesus is better than drifting away, than giving up, because he offers us salvation. He controls everything, and he tasted death for us. Today, the author's continuing to unpack that. He's going to say, what does this tasting death for everyone mean? What does it look like? Well, it means that Jesus is building a family. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 18, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. And once you are there, if you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along as I'm going to read our passage for today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. It will be, you use the Bible in front of you, will also be on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. The author writes, For it was fitting that he, talking about God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, talking about Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, and here he quotes from the Old Testament, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are our better brother. Teach us today to understand what that means. Help us to grasp how you've suffered to save us. How you've died to defeat death. And now you are available and able to help us. Lord, I pray that we would see you clearly this morning. I pray that in any words I say, you would increase and I would decrease so that we can see who you are. That you're not only a better brother, but you are our Lord and Savior. It's in your name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So through this text, the author's bringing up three reasons why Jesus is a better brother, why he's a better brother. And the first one that he brings up is because he suffered to save his family. Jesus is a better brother because he suffered to save his family. If you're using the outline that was in the back, that would be the first point. He suffered to save his family. We just read the passage, so I'm not going to read it again. But when we hit these verses, a big switch is happening here. You remember the last two times we were here in Eve, Hebrews, the author has been going on about how Jesus is better than angels. The Hebrew people seem to have a tendency, at least the ones he's writing to, to talk about angels, possibly to worship angels. He says, no, Jesus is better than that. But now there's a switch. Instead of talking about how greater Jesus is than angels, he's going to now, in a, in a sense, not really, but bring Jesus down to the people and say, not only is he better than angels, but he's also like us. He became like us because God did something. God acted to make lost people, to make rebels, to make sinners his children. He chose to save his people. And the way he did this was by sending Christ into a life of spiritual suffering so that we now could be a part of his family. As our text says, it was fitting. It was the only way. It had to happen this way. It was the only right way for it to be. And it was the way that for whom and by whom all things exist, God, the one who everything is about, this is how he did it, because it is all about him, not us. The Apostle Paul will write in the book of Romans that for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The author's making clear that what God's going to do here in sending Jesus is so that God gets the glory and praise. And what he has done is he is bringing many sons, many daughters, many people to glory. The truth that's being revealed here is that God has been a part of an adoption ceremony. He has adopted people into his family. For those who know God, we were separated from him, but he has brought us into his household. He's brought us into his eternal home. 
He's chosen to welcome us into a glorious relationship with Him. His spiritual sons and daughters are brought to glory. And this is why God saves us. And this is the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that God wants you to be a part of His family. And the way He did that was through His Son. By adopting you, you can now be restored to your original intention. When God made men and women, He meant for them. He meant for people to have a relationship with Him. And through Christ, we can have that again. We can have eternal hope. And since Jesus is the one this happens through, that makes Him the founder, the originator, the author of our salvation. He's the one who started this process. Like a a Western pioneer, He's the one who blazed the trail for us that we follow. Like a ship's captain charting a course that no one has been before, He has charted this course to salvation for us. If any suffering that we experience, we are just following our leader, our champion over suffering and death. And his suffering gives us a better foundation for salvation. As our text says, that he did this to make this founder of salvation perfect through suffering. To make perfect. Now when we read that, our our eyebrows may go up. We may say, wait a minute, I've I've been to church before. I've heard that Jesus is God. Are you saying he wasn't perfect? pastor? Well, well, no, it doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful, but he lived a perfect life. And by living a perfect life, he became a perfect sacrifice for us. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy and it breaks down, so please don't read too much more into this than I intend. But uh, if you're a sports person, think of it like the beginning of a season, say the beginning of a football season. At the beginning of a football season, every team is perfect. They have no losses at all. Now, they also have no wins, but they have no losses, and they have a perfect record. But when the season starts, very few teams go undefeated. In terms of the NFL and in the modern Super Bowl era, only one team ever went all the way undefeated. It's very rare. So it's not exactly the same, but somewhat like that. Jesus was perfect, not because he was 0-0, he was God. But then by living a perfect life, he stayed undefeated through his experience here. And that made his sacrifice perfect. He obeyed God's law to the point of his death. As Hebrews 5 says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. By suffering like us and overcoming that suffering, he's better able to represent us and to bring us to salvation. I was reading some messages from a pastor named F.B. Meyer. He was a pastor around the, the turn of the century between the 19th and 20th century. And he said this, in no other conceivable way could he have been so effectively qualified to be our leader as he has been by the ordeal of suffering. And here's what I really liked. Every pang, every tear, Every thrill that Jesus experienced, all were needed to complete his equipment to help us. And that's what he's able to do. Verse 11 tells us that he now makes us holy. He makes us sanctified. He makes us righteous before God by his sacrifice. We'll read at the end of the book of Hebrews that Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify, to make holy people through his own blood, his sacrifice. He makes us holy and right before God. He's able to do this because we all share one source. We're both humans, but we also share God's righteousness as our heavenly Father. And now we're a part of the same family, a spiritual family. And as I said at the beginning, that makes Jesus our brother. We're now his spiritual brothers and sisters. And when he says this, then the author says something amazing. Maybe the most humbling part of this whole passage. Look at the second part of verse 11. He says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. To call them brothers and sisters. Friends, if you know Christ, he is not ashamed of you. Despite your sin, your failure, your embarrassments, where you mess up, where you fall short, he is not ashamed to call you his own. Jesus is not, he cannot be ashamed of you. Now, he may be grieved by what you do. Your sin may mar your relationship with him, or at least your experience of it, but it does not change your worth to him. Your relationship with Jesus is not based on your performance, what you do. It's based on the fact that he has chosen to love you. And so now he is not ashamed. And what a humbling grace that is. Now we're part of a spiritual family, a perfect family that lasts forever. And this was God's intention for that family. One verse I reference a lot is Romans 8.29 because it talks about what God is doing in us. And it says, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Meaning God's purpose in our life is that we would be more like Jesus. But there's another purpose in that. In order that he might be the firstborn, the most important among many brothers. Yes, God's purpose for us is that we would look like Jesus, but it's also that we would be a part of his family and know him. In our text, the author proves it by quoting two Old, Pas Old Testament passages. He starts in verse 12 by quoting Psalm 22, 22. This is a psalm about the Messiah, the Hebrew people's Savior. And it says that he has a message to declare to his brothers and sisters. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And then they gather together as a congregation, an assembly to sing God's praise, to worship him. That's what we just did together right before I got up. We gathered together. We had the privilege of singing praise to God. And that's where we're going. One day there will be the biggest family reunion any of us had ever been a part of. We'll gather together to give God the glory that he deserves. Now we model this truth by as we sing together and by what's happening now. When someone preaches, declares, God's word. We are reminding each other the truth of who God is. Jesus shares his word as, as I'm talking, but only as I faithfully represent him. Not every word I say, oh, it's coming right from on high. No, I'm communicating. This is what Jesus has said. This is how he encourages us. He does the same through you. When you share God's truth with someone, when you tell someone this is how you can know Christ, Jesus is, in a sense, preaching through you to telling his good news to those who may one day become his family. In verse 13, he quotes from likely Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. 
And he's taken Isaiah's words about God's relationship to his people to now describe this is how Jesus relates to us. He associates with us as God's children. Jesus is God's special son, yes, but we are now God's children. And so that makes us family because we're welcomed and accepted in him. Now that's wonderful, but if we're thinking through, we may think, well, that's great, I can be a part of God's family, but how did that happen? How could it be that I was God's enemy and far from him, but now I can be a part of his family? Well, that's what verse 14 tells us. Jesus had to become human in order to do this. As we read earlier, since therefore those children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things. Jesus shared in the same flesh and blood, daily life, human experience that each of us has. One of the most profound verses in Scripture describing this is the very beginning of the Gospel of John. John's talking about who Jesus is, and he calls Jesus the Word because he's God's truth delivered to us. And he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt, lived among us. I don't have it here, and um, there's pluses and minuses to this version of Scripture, but the message, I think, has he moved into the neighborhood, which conveys that idea. Jesus came here and dwelt among us. Says now we've seen his glory. He's glory of the only Son from the Father. He's full of grace and truth, but he lived among us. He was fully human in every way. And this was important because he needed to be human because since he was God, he needed to die for us. And God cannot die unless he's also human. A pastor, scholar, theologian from the middle of the 1800s, named Charles Hodge, said, as God, he could not suffer. As man, he was capable of suffering. If Jesus just stayed God and stayed in heaven, he couldn't suffer for us. He couldn't relate to us in that way. But instead, he became a man capable of suffering. This is one of those great truths in our faith that makes it so different from every other religion and faith system. We believe that God himself came and lived among us. He lived among us and then died to save us. And that's a very difficult thing to wrap our head around. How did God, someone perfect, become just like us? What did that look like? And it's impossible for us to figure out all the implications. Oh, maybe it looked like this or, or that. We, we can't figure out all of it. But what we know is that he did become human. One of my commentaries I was reading referenced uh, something that Max Licato wrote that I think is just a good reminder for us when we think about Christ's humanity. For 33 years or so that Jesus was alive, he would feel everything that you and I have felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He probably had moments of being afraid of failure or concerned about what would happen. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head ached. Lakeda would go on to write that he probably snored. He had to blow his nose. He was a human like us. And this is what's so tricky when we think about Jesus because as our author here had been talking about us, we'll talk about a lot. Jesus is better. He's so much wonderful. He's God. He's holy and righteous. He's different from us. But he also lived among us as one of us, as a human. And it's important for us to grasp that humanity 
Because as a human, He suffered in a way greater than we could understand. He was separated from God. He bore the weight of our sin, the punishment that it deserved. Again, as Pastor Meyer wrote, He is King in the realm of sorrow. He is peerless in pain, supreme in His distress. This is how He is serving for us as a better brother, how He is a better brother. One would hope if one has a close family with siblings and family that love one another, that the older brother would take the responsibility to, I'm going to put aside my interests to care for my family. If my family's struggling, I'm going to do what I can to help my siblings and my family. And that's what Christ did for us. He said, I'm going to lead heaven to save my brothers and sisters. There is no brother better than that. So he suffered to save his family. But not only that, he's a better brother because he died to defeat death. He died to defeat death. He defeated death. Now, in in this passage, you'll notice some of the Scripture verses, like they're in one point and another, because this is a sermon where themes are tied together. There's not clear lines of this, chunk, chunk, chunk. They run into one another. But let's back up. Let's read 14 through 17 to see how Christ died to defeat death. Our text says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let's skip over to verse 17. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus needed to be human so that he could be this sacrifice on our behalf. One last time, a quote from that Pastor Meyer. I really enjoyed what he wrote about this. He said, others die because they are born. Christ was born that he might die. We enter life and someday we die, but Christ came for the purpose of dying to defeat death and save us. As our text tells us, by dying on the cross, he has broken Satan, the devil's hold over us. It's a death blow to Satan's kingdom. Satan is a deceiver. He tries to keep people from knowing God and his truth. But in Christ's death, the truth is revealed. It was the only way salvation could be accomplished. Through Christ's death, we can now see the way to God. We can know him. This idea of Christ's death defeating death itself and defeating the devil, this is a theme that's really hard to portray. And a lot of movie versions of Christ's death and, and, and his resurrection life of Jesus, some of them are good, some, some are bad. Uh, one that was popular, it's now, if you want to feel old, it's almost been 20 years, it's been 18 years now, but uh, The Passion of the Christ around there. And there's problems with that movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But one thing that it got really right, I think, was conveying this idea that when Jesus died, that was a defeat for Satan. And in that film, Satan does everything to try to stop Jesus from dying. And when Christ finally dies, Satan cries out in defeat. because He realizes 
that Christ has won a victory over death. As Scripture will bring it out in 1 John 3, it said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's part of the reason why Christ came, to defeat what Satan was doing. There is a devil, there is an enemy out there. It's not like the horror movies you might watch, but he does keep people from believing the gospel. But his days are numbered. And since if we know him, then we are in Christ and he cannot do spiritual damage to God's people. He has no hold over believers. As our text said, Jesus delivered all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's defeated Satan and saved us. He's freed us from that slavery to sin and the death that always follows. We're released from bondage. He's delivered us from the fear of death. Now in this life, we know that death is inevitable. It's something that's coming for each of us. And it's a human response to be somewhat frightened of that. But Jesus died to set us free from that fear. To set us free from Satan's hold on us. It's not that God and Satan are equal powers and Jesus came and he's made a deal with Satan. I'll give you this for in exchange for these people. It's not like that. But our slavery kept us under Satan's hold, that fear of death. And Jesus, by dying, freed us. In fact, death itself has received a mortal wound. Death will now not last forever. Soon it too will be gone. Paul writes about this to his protege, Timothy. He tells Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, not because of our works, what we do, but because of his purpose and grace. He's manifested that, revealed that through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Who, what did Christ do? I put it in italics. He abolished death. And now he's brought to us life and immortality delight through the gospel. Jesus paid the penalty and now death has no power to control our lives or our actions. Now, we live in a world that's full of death. We see loved ones dying all the time, and so we may wonder if that's actually true. Has, has he really defeated death? I, I sure see it a lot around me. Well, think about it this way. Jesus has traveled the path of death before us. It's not that it doesn't come to us. It's now that we have nothing to fear going down that road. I know I've told of this story before, but when I was in college, there was some uh, friends who were living in my dorm with me, and they told me about a place that was over the river where there was a bridge, and a spot you could jump from the bridge into the river. It was deep enough that you could do that. And so one day they took me down there, and I looked, and I thought, that's a really high bridge. I, I don't really know if that's something I want to do. But I watched one person do it, and then a second, and then a third, and I thought, oh, okay. So I've seen others go that way before. I, I can do that now. Of course, that does mean that if uh, my mother or grandmother ever asked me, you know, if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do that too? I could <laughs> honestly say yes, yes, actually, I, I would. But in a better sense of what's talking about here, like the bridge, Jesus has gone there before us. We've watched him go, and now we can realize, oh, we have nothing to fear going that way as well. And we can live in light of that freedom. We don't have to be afraid. 
One pastor I read talking about this named Michael Kruger, he said, we spend so much time thinking about how long we're going to live, planning for the time we have left. But in Christ, we live eternally. So we need to get the fear of death off our shoulders. Live like we're going to live forever. That doesn't mean we live recklessly or foolishly. We ignore warnings or things people say. It doesn't mean that at all, but it means we're not controlled by the fear of death. We don't let that determine our actions. We let our affection, our loyalty for Christ determine what we do. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted by God as sons and daughters. Instead of fear, we can cry out to him, Abba, Father, and know him. For the moment, we'll go over verse 16, but look at verse 17. It says, this is the way it has to be. Therefore, he had to be made like us his brothers and sisters. He had to be fully human. Sometimes we talk in ways we want to make Jesus different. Yes, he is God, and so there's, he's very different from us in some ways, but he still lived like us. He still was one of us. As he lived here on earth, there, there's really one major difference between Jesus and us. We sin, and he didn't. Other than that, his experience of life was very similar to ours. And so now, through his death, our text says he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He's able to stand in our place before God, represent us before God. God, in his holy righteousness, goodness, we can't represent ourselves before him. We need someone else to stand between us. Think about it this way. If you have to go to court, you can try to represent yourself, but you'll have much better success. If you have a lawyer or someone standing between you, your advocate to represent you. That's what Christ is able to do for us. He shows us great mercy. He faithfully represents us before God. He extends loving care to us in our brokenness. And he will always have compassion for us, whatever we are going through. I don't want to spend too much time, more time talking about what it means that Jesus is our priest because the book of Hebrews will talk about that a lot later. So we'll touch that a bit then. But before we finish this passage, look, look at the very end at verse 17 again. When, when I share, there's some sermons, I, there's something I do very intentionally. I try to avoid big theologian, theology words because I, I feel like that, that makes, it can be pride for some people. It may make me feel like I'm smart, I, I know this, and because I want God's word to be clear to you, to know that God wants to speak to you and love you, shows grace to you, and his word can make a difference in your life. So I, I make an effort to avoid theology terms and words to convey what does God's truth actually mean. However, when the text itself uses those words, I, I can't ignore it. And one of the most important words in the New Testament is here in this verse 17. And that's that word propitiation. It says that he will be a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you have a different translation, the NIV, I think, has atonement. Uh, the NLT has sacrifice. Those are good words, but they're not quite strong enough to describe what's happening here. Propitiation is an atoning sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. If you want a one-word definition, a one-word synonym, it's satisfaction. 
If I read it that way, it would say that he's a faithful high priest in the service of God to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. Seminary president Al Mohler puts it this way. He says, propitiation refers to the satisfaction of God's justice. Remember, God is holy. He is good. He is completely righteous. And so he had to punish sin. He has to. If he doesn't, he would be corrupt. He'd be saying, oh, that's not that bad. I can brush that aside. No, he has to act against it. He can't ignore the truth. But instead of him punishing us for what we've done, Jesus died in our place. And now God's wrath and justice is satisfied in Christ. So unlike the Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction, God can get satisfaction. He gets satisfaction through Christ. Or if you're a fan of the musical Hamilton, unlike Alexander Hamilton or Angelica Schuyler, God is satisfied. He is satisfied in what Christ has done. That pastor I read earlier, Michael Kruger, he put it this way, Jesus is like a sponge that soaks up water. He soaks up all of God's wrath. It's not there anymore. And this idea of Christ satisfying God's desire for justice, this is something that, that you're familiar with, even if you don't think you are. We sing about it every so often. One of my favorite hymns, songs we sing, is In Christ Alone, written by Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty. And this is in the second verse of that song. It says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They could have said the wrath of God was propitiated, but that would be a difficult word to sing. So they went with satisfied because it's the same truth. And what it means is that every sin on him was laid. And now here in the death of Christ, I live. This is an important truth of our faith, and it's actually somewhat controversial. There's some Christian groups that they remove that, that line when they try to sing this song, or they wanted to until the authors told them they couldn't, because they don't like the idea of God's wrath. They like to talk about God being a God of love, which he absolutely is. But this is a key part of Scripture. We talked about how Christ delivered us from Satan, but he delivered us from Satan's deception. Hold on. It's not that Satan was going to punish us. Satan really doesn't have that authority. But Jesus saves us from God's just wrath, anger, and justice against sin. This is part of the heart of the gospel. Jesus saved us from what God has to do to sin. It's not that Jesus is opposed to God here. This was part of God's plan. We started in verse 10 talking about God is doing this, the one for whom, by whom all things exist. God has done this. We even see this throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 78 says that he, talking about God, being compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity and sin and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger off and did not stir up all his wrath. Every person who hears me, we have sinned. We have offended a holy God. We've become rebels against him. We deserve God's wrath and judgment on us. But salvation is available in Jesus Christ. And that's glorious news to be celebrated. As the Apostle John would write, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent 
His Son to be, hey, there's that word again, the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. That's how God loves us. He sent Jesus to be the one to satisfy His wrath. That is what our older brother does for us. He makes that sacrifice so that we can be restored to God. And if you're here or you're watching online and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, that is what Christ can do for you. I pray you'll talk to someone about how you can know Christ and know that salvation. How you can turn away from sin and embrace the truth that Christ has satisfied God's wrath on your behalf. And if you have done that, if you do know him, then I have even more good news. Jesus not only suffered and died in the past, But now, in the present, he helps his people. He helps his people. He's a better brother, not only because he suffered to save us, not only because he died to defeat death and set us free, but right now, he helps his people. Let's look at verses 16 and 18 to see this. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And then jump down to verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That verse 16 shows us that Jesus doesn't help or give aid to angels, but he helps his people. Our text says Abraham's descendants or the offspring of Abraham. It's not just talking about those who are Jews. It's talking about all who are part of God's family. We receive the same blessing as his children. We are his spiritual sons and daughters. Here the author is going back to what he talked about, what we talked about a few weeks ago, about how Jesus is better than angels. He says, you guys like angels. You like to talk about them. You like to speculate about them. Some of you like to worship him. But God doesn't save them. And Through Jesus, he saves us. Jesus didn't become an angel and die to save angels. No, he became human and died to save us. I didn't fully realize the implication of this until somebody was sharing when I was in seminary. But think about this. Some angels rebelled against God. Some of them rejected who God was and they said, we're going to build our own kingdom, do our own thing. That's where Satan came from. That's where demons come from, fallen angels. But here's something incredibly humbling. They have no hope. They rebelled and sinned against God and they will be separated from him from all eternity and there is nothing that they can do to get back to a right relationship with God. We have sinned, rebelled against God, just like them, but there's hope for us. There's no hope for them, but there is hope for us. What makes us so special, so different? That's that's for God to say, not me. That just humbles me to realize that there is a way for me to be restored to God. I have hope because Jesus saves. It's not because there's something good in me. That is solely God's grace to bring salvation to us. That's why he made Jesus like us in every respect. He gave Jesus the experience to help us. And now verse 18 tells us that since Jesus suffered in his fight, By battling temptation, he's able to help us too. He suffered in his fight, but he succeeded. In his life, he was always victorious. But it's hard 
to fight against sin. It takes a toll. It is hard to seek God. We'll read in just a couple chapters in Hebrews 4 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. And that's an encouragement to us because then with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. Remember, Jesus has been here before. He lived this life so he can help us now. He sympathizes with us. The feelings and emotions that we have, he has experienced that. Jesus knows loneliness. He knows loss of loved ones. He knows feelings of being betrayed. He knows the impact of lies and what that feels like. He knows conflict with his family. He knows stress. And he knows temptation to sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin is giving in to the temptation, dwelling on it, thinking about it, and acting upon it. And we might not quite understand exactly how all this worked, but Jesus was tempted. And resisting temptation is very hard. When our desires are appealed to, we want to do something to know, wait, that's not the right thing to do. That is difficult. And so imagine going your whole life on earth, never giving in to sin and your sinful desires. That's, that sounds impossible for us. Sounds like an overwhelming burden. But Jesus did that. And he did that so that he could help us. Now we'll return to this idea in uh, chapter 4 when we get there in a few weeks. But let's focus on the fact that Jesus is helping us as our brother. Friends, we our family with him. And so when we are tempted, when we are struggling, we don't need to call a super spiritual Christian. We don't need to call a saint. We don't need to see if there's an angel who can come and help us. We can call our older brother. We can ask him for help. Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way, it is a dark room which you are going through. But Jesus went through it before. It's a sharp fight which you are waging, but Jesus has stood foot to foot with the same enemy. When we're tempted, when we struggle, we can rest in our relationship with him. He can help us because he knows us best. Again, he's like a brother to us. If you have close siblings, then you probably know that you relate to each other in a way different from others. There can be just one look or one thing you see and you just look at your brother or sister and the two of you know exactly what you're thinking. You've had the same life experiences. You relate to each other on an incredibly deep level. Jesus has the same relationship with us, but so much better. He not only knows what this life is like, if I'm struggling with something that one of my brothers has experienced, I, they can be like, oh, I know what that's like. But Jesus not only can say that, he can say, I know what that's like, and I've made it through that. I've overcome that. Let me help you. Let me show you how now you may say but pastor john this is the 21st century jesus lived 2000 years ago things are different now the political situation is different we have all this technology there's this social media jesus didn't have to deal with any of that well no but the temptations to sin are still there the same greed is still there for the past 2000 years the same lust for our own desires 
the same drive for our own power, the same selfishness that we demonstrate, those things still exist. And Jesus has conquered those sins. And He can help us conquer as well. Now maybe you're here listening or, or, or watching and there's some extreme struggle with sin you've been going through. This sin issue, I know this doesn't please God and you've been fighting fighting it and maybe you're close to the end, tempted to give up. I don't know if it's worth it to keep fighting this. Or maybe you have given up and said, I tried to stop doing this thing, but I said, you know what, I, I just can't do it anymore. But friends, Jesus has been through it before. Turn to Him for help. I know it's hard. I'm not up here telling you, it'll be easy. Say a prayer and then all that will be gone from your life. I I know that it will be difficult. But Jesus has been there before. And He can help you. Seek Him. Ask your brother for help. You cannot live for God on your own. Stop trying to live for yourself. Ask your older brother, your Lord, your Savior, to help you because He suffered and died for you. Ask Him for help. And He will. He will help you to turn from sin and to trust in Him. And it may be hard and difficult. It could take years or decades. But when He wins the victory, it will lead you to worship Him because He's worthy of praise.